but it just fits together well that I can do these seven churches between now and Christmas. And then we're going to do a Christmas theme starting on the first Sunday of December, dealing with the incarnation of Christ, which I'm super excited to share that with you uh, in December. And then in January, Lord willing, as my mother would say, God willing, and the creek doesn't rise. have no idea what that saying means, but she said it. Um, Lord willing, we will then get back to John chapter 17, and we'll look at, I think, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. It's actually the Lord's Prayer. What you and I call the Lord's Prayer is not really the Lord's Prayer. It was how He taught us to pray. His prayer that's recorded in Scripture is John chapter 17, and I'm really excited to preach that to you, Lord willing, in the new year. But this is a new month. It's the first Sunday of September. Has been our practice all year is to take a book of the Bible, and we're just going to focus on that all this month. So the book for September is Revelation. So I really want to encourage you to read a chapter a day, a couple of chapters a day. I know some people are doing more than one chapter a day, and that means you'll read through the book at least three times this month. The theme of this month is this, God is in control. God is in control, and I think that is something that many of you, or if you've been around church, you've heard that expression. Many of you that maybe haven't been around church, maybe you're trying to find your way back to church. If you're looking online and you are a bit cynical or skeptic or suspicious of church, you've been hurt by church, you've been hurt by circumstances of life. Many of us have heard the expression, God is in control. But when life seems out of control... What do we do now? Is God really in control? The theme idea for this month, and as we read through the book of Revelation, is this. The hope and the help of the gospel to the church. I actually preached this series for a camp ministry called Muskoka Bible Conference in uh, Muskoka, Ontario. I got to do that back in July. There was about a couple of thousand people there and spoke to several hundred at a time. And I preached through these seven churches of Revelation, and I thought it would be timely to do that again for my home church, Calvary Baptist Church, and for our church plants, both downtown and in Kilbride and up at Northern Cross. And basically, I want to put it as this way, we are going to look at today in the church at Ephesus, this letter that Daniel just read for us, you can see juxtapositioned against each other is the stand versus the Savior, or in other words, only the gospel, the real gospel, the true gospel, will keep our focus individually and as a church focused on Christ and not on what we're either for or what we're either against. And I think that's a timely message. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean because this happens far too often. The story was told some years ago of a pastor who found the roads blocked one Sunday morning and he had no way. And this was in the wintertime. The only way he could get to his church was to strap on some skates and skate on the river to get to church, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church and the deacons of the church that saw him skating up the river were horrified that their preacher had skated on the Lord's day. After the service, they held an emergency meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate or not go to church at all. So finally, one elder said, well, pastor, let me ask you this. Did you enjoy it? 
And when the preacher said no, then the board decided unanimously that it was all right. (laughs) Now, we laugh at that, but some form of that happens in just about every church in this country all too often. Now, I used a very extreme case because it's one that maybe none of us would identify with. But we've all felt the sting of unloving standards versus an unloving relationship. I'm going to use this word a lot this morning called orthodoxy. And I want to make sure we all understand what I mean by that word. The word orthodox actually comes from the Greek word ortho, meaning right or correct, and doxa, which means thought or teaching or glorification. It's typically used to refer to the correct worship or the correct theological and doctrinal observances of one's faith or religion. But here in the church at Ephesus... One of the last books of the Bible, the book of Revelation, one of the reasons I want to start preaching the first couple of chapters is because I want you to realize that Revelation is not the Star Wars of the Bible. It's not where we go when we get all of our charts and graphs out and all of a sudden now we're going to predict when God's coming back and who the whore of Babylon is and who is the Antichrist and all these things. No, this was a book written to seven literal, real churches at about the end of the first century when persecution was hot and the culture was changing and here was the message to the church at Ephesus. You have orthodoxy, but you have left love. You have all kinds of stands, and you have left your Savior. Whatever way you want to put it, it's something the church has battled since Christ died all the way back over 2,000 years ago. And this morning, as we start September of 2022, and we begin with the Lord's table, as we embark on a journey, what I pray this fall is a journey of obedience with a godly vision that's based on God's word. We need to settle as Calvary Baptist Church and all of our ministries right here and right now, what kind of Christians, what kind of church will we be? Are we only concerned with being an orthodox church? Are we concerned more, though, about being a loving church? Do we think St. John's needs another religious church? Or is the greatest need for this city a relationship church? You see, what's killing the Church of Canada is being a self-righteous church. Where are the humble churches of our country? A true community of Christians in love with Jesus or, today's language, are we going to be a group of posers playing the part of Christians? but secretly living for ourselves. Now, I would suggest, based on our passage and others in the Bible, if I could say this so bold, I believe an unloving church is no church at all. If a church is not loving, then it's not a church. And I want to take a different approach to to you with these seven churches. I do want to break them down exegetically, but I want to make this sermon series extremely practical. I want to hold them up to the vision of Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. You see, because Christ's vision is this. Love God, love people, and serve others. What are we going to do with these seven churches? 
Well, you need to know as we preach this first sermon, we are to ask every one of us individually and collectively, to what extent do we see ourselves fitting into the situation described? How can we maximize the strengths of each church and minimize the weaknesses that we see in each, in each church? And just so you know, take your Bible and go back to chapter 1, verse 9. In chapter 1, verse 9, notice John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ was on the Isle of Patmos on account of the Word of God. He's basically identifying with them. He's saying, I was on this island because I was being persecuted, just like you. I understand. I'm feeling the sting of this. And then he has a vision. Notice what he says. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice with a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, which is this book, Revelation, and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then John says the most amazing thing. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He sees Jesus, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and he goes on to describe what he sees, and then in verse 17, he says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I want to remind you again afresh that contrary to our easy worship we have in the 21st century, where we think that if I could just get a glimpse of Jesus, then me and Jesus would be pals everywhere from Genesis to Revelation, that a human being comes face to face with God. This is always the reaction, to fall on their face afraid. But here is always what happens next. He says, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive evermore. And I take the time because what I want you to realize is we have chapters and verses in our Bible. But notice that what happens in chapter 1 verse 9 all the way through chapter 2, all the way to chapter 3, till you get to the end, is one vision. Everything that John talks about in chapter 1, verse 9 to 20 is a continuation of chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4 is a new vision. And this is what I want you to catch. So really, in a sentence then, Romans chapter, sorry, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, all the way to the end of chapter 3 is basically this. Jesus is Lord. Amen? He was crucified... He is risen, he did ascend, he is now reigning, and he will return. That's just true. All scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed and profitable, including the book of Revelation. And as we look at the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to see that the main point of these seven letters goes like this, for the glory of God... Jesus charges these churches to be zealous for the gospel, number one, zealous for the gospel, number two, reject false teaching, and number three, live in a manner that corresponds to the gospel. 
That's why our theme this month is Revelation is gives us the hope and the help of the gospel. In a passage, it's Matthew 22. And he, Jesus, said to him when the lawyer came and said, What are the greatest commandments? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two. Everything about life is summed up in these two. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, how we love God and how we love people actually displays if we actually understand the rest of the Bible. So when we read passages like this, Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7, we realize that what you read is one continuous thought. There's no break from the vision of chapter 1. In fact, many, almost exclusively, the expressions of Jesus in verses 9 to 20 of chapter 1 are used in the letters of chapter 2 and 3. There's no break. But there's a striking contrast. Have you ever noticed it? Step back for a minute. Have you ever noticed in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, the contrast between the obvious glory and authority of the risen Christ and the beleaguered and persecuted and oppressed and sinful and unimpressive and insignificant state of these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3? There's not a superstar among them. Not one. There's no mega church. Just a group of people trying to make it. Most are failing. Even the two that aren't feel that they're insignificant and small. And most of us are probably not facing life-threatening persecution like we'll read in a few weeks of the Church of Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10. But many of us are aware of plenty of reasons to be discouraged about the state of the church in Canada. Maybe like Ephesus on one end or Laodicea, we either know we either know that our love is not what it was at first or we know that those in church are lukewarm. We're playing church. We're religious but not really passionate or urgent. And we don't have to look far either, do we? To find false teaching, idolatry, immorality, hypocrisy, and spiritual death in churches. We don't have to look beyond our own city. You see, until Jesus comes, as long as there are people in churches, are you ready for this? There's going to be problems in churches. My father is going to be crossing over on the ferry tonight. I'll get to see him tomorrow. My dad told me all the time, he said, Stephen, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. As long as there are people in churches, there will be problems in churches. And this is very interesting. And it's very interesting as well. If you study these seven churches, you'll notice kind of a a structure, a theme, a, a wave, so to speak. Okay? You've got... Four churches are given compliments and then they're given condemnations. Two churches are given only compliments and promises. And one church is only given 
condemnation or rebuke and no compliments. But all seven are given promises. Ephesus is warned that Jesus would leave. Whereas Laodicea is told, Jesus is on the outside asking to come in. Right after Ephesus and right before Laodicea, you've got Smyrna and Philadelphia. The only churches that receive compliments and stuck right in the middle, you have three churches, Thyatira, Pergamum, and Sardis, and you see the string. One is flirting with compromise, one is living in compromise, and one is dead in compromise. And then you come to Philadelphia and then Laodicea. And so today we're in Ephesus, and the number one problem of this church, and quite frankly, the number one reason you shouldn't participate in the Lord's table as professing Christians is this. Here was what Jesus had against them, self-righteousness. This was the self-righteous church. Now you might say, okay, Steve, well, what is self-righteousness? Well, I'm glad you asked. Self-righteousness is when we use biblical language and even prayer to thank God for what we believe we've done in our strength. In other words, we thank God that he should be impressed with us. And it's subtle. You see the fruit of self-righteousness? God, I thank you. I'm not like others. The fruit of godly righteousness God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Notice what he's doing. He's actually thanking God. He's in prayer and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them. And then he proceeds to pray out his resume. Right? I am not like these other ones, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's comparative righteousness 101. I think if you asked this Pharisee, are you perfect? He would have been the first one to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not perfect. I, 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 I need God. I need my religion. But, but I'm not like him or them. And I thank God. I thank God I'm not like him or them. This was Ephesus. Look at what it says. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's humility. He owns his junk. Remember, what are the four ways you know you're not dealing with your sin? If you're denying it, making excuses for it, if you're running from it, or you're blaming others for it. And you'll notice this tax collector doesn't do anything. He just says, Lord, I need mercy because I'm a sinner. Not only is he saying I'm not perfect, I'm so not perfect, I don't deserve. All I have is to say, mercy, mercy, mercy. You see, the problem with the church at Ephesus was 
Mercy and grace were things they sang about, but they rarely, very rarely ever prayed about. They talked about mercy and grace, but very rarely ever thought they needed it afresh and anew every day. Oh, they'd had an experience with mercy and grace, but now they were standing for stuff. Now they were in the battle, right? But notice what Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, as Harrington says, the book of Revelation, especially chapters 2 and 3, peg Revelation firmly to our world. It's not a futuristic book. It's a book about the future, yes, but it's a book about the future and how you and I live today. I love this. It's a word of hope addressed to people who need hope, people who may falter. The messages, like so much of the New Testament, bring us encouragement. I love how he ends this. He says, there has never been a perfect Christian community. Christians have been faithful and heroic, and they have been frail and vacillating. It's not enough for us to find comfort in the word to Philadelphia when we, when we must also be heartbroken to the word to Laodicea. And so we come to Ephesus, the church that was all about its stand, and they had left their Savior. The city of Ephesus was 60 miles straight from Patmos, the Isle of Patmos, where John is when he has these visions and he writes this down. And it may have been that that was one of the reasons he wrote first to Ephesus. The citizens of Ephesus called it the, the city itself the, metropolitan, the, the metropolis sorry, of Asia. It was the capital of Asia, the province. It had a population, are you ready, of about 250,000, about the same size as the St. John's area. Of course, many, as you know, know it to be the home of Artemis or Diana and her temple, which was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The temple to Diana was the largest building in the ancient world and the first major temple ever made completely out of marble. Ephesus was also called a free city, which means Rome trusted them to govern themselves. They had their own city council and their own police force. So just like St. John's, the RCMP wasn't in Ephesus. They had the RNC. They had their own city police force. They had their own city government, all of that kind of stuff. There were major supporters as well of Rome and the cultic worship of the emperor. And the church at Ephesus had a great history as a church. Paul had planted this church, and after wanting to go there and couldn't get there, he finally gets there. He spends close to two and a half years there, longer than he spends in any other city that we hear about or read about in all of Acts. He preached, he visited, he gave lectures, he went home to home. The gospel literally went through the whole city and even beyond. And out of Ephesus, the gospel spread through all of Asia Minor. And this is another reason that it's the first church addressed. In fact, the witness of Ephesus was so strong, there was actually a revolt and a riot in the city because of so many people were coming to Christ and so many people stopped buying Diana dolls, little silver statues made to Diana, that it actually almost ruined uh, an occupation of the city. The silversmiths, the union got, got involved and they threw a riot because their sales and their industry was almost ruined because so many people became Christians. 
And the leaders of Ephesus knew the heart of Paul. They were called to meet him on his way to Rome in Acts chapter 20. And where he has one of the most personal and heart-wrenching discussions. And he goes and he says this in Acts 20. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. But notice, notice what he says. So he calls them to stand. He says, I want you to stand for truth because false teaching and false uh, preachers are going to come. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Then he ends with this. I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, and you yourselves know that with these hands I have ministered unto my necessities. I have showed you all things How that so laboring you ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Now these were the words he told them to remember. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's all he said. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and he prayed with them. And they all wept. And you would think, wow, they're weeping because now they realize it. We've got to stay true to the word. We've got to stand. But we need to be gracious. And we need to love the poor. And we need to love our city. No, no, no. Watch, watch. They all wept and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, soaring most of all for the words which he spoke. What words? That they should see his face no more. They weren't sorrowing because... No, we've got a calling to stand and be loving. Their, their, their sorrow was, Paul, you're going and you're not coming back? Even here in this wonderful display of love and sorrow, I think these were little, little breadcrumbs that we were getting all the way to Revelation 2, that Ephesus was going to have a priority problem. You see, Ephesus had great pastors. Paul planted them. Timothy was one of their pastors. And in fact, John the Apostle, who was writing the book of Revelation, who would write this letter to them, was their last pastor. Can you imagine how condemning it must have been to John to have to write to the church he had pastored and said, "Um, Jesus is going to leave unless y'all figure out how to love him again. It's interesting because John was one time called the son of thunder. He was all about truth. And yet somehow he learned love. And so I love these flaws in the apostles, right? Peter, the great apostle to the Gentiles in Galatians, still messes up. And he starts to side with one ethnic group over another. And here's the apostle John, the great apostle of love, the beloved disciple. But somewhere in here, Ephesus got all about theology and very little about gospel application. And so let's look at it very quickly. In verse 1, we get the description of Christ. Notice what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So in other words, he's the protector of the church. (laughs) It's funny because I think he says this because Ephesus thought, We must protect Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus' first words are, Hey, uh, I'm the protector of the church. I don't need protecting. I'm protecting you. Does this not remind you a little bit of Peter in Matthew 16 
when he says, who do men say that I am? And Peter steps up and you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, right, Peter. And flesh and blood didn't show this to you. And then he says, and I'm going to go suffer and I'm going to die. And then Peter, <clears throat> a word, Lord. <laughs> Not really a fan of that plan, right? And, and Peter probably thought, I'm going to protect my Savior. Listen, you, you, you don't need to do this die stuff. Like now is the time for kingdom building. And how does Jesus respond to him? Remember this? Get behind me, Satan. He goes from, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church to, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so here in Ephesus, he reminds them in his description, he is present with the church. This is taken from verse 13, by the way, of Revelation chapter 1, and goes further. In chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is not only in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he walks among them. And so Ephesus was proud, not just of being the metropolis of Asia, but they were proud as a church at being the mother church of the region. And this description was meant to remind the church of some key truths that they were neglecting. Jesus wants them to love him, to stand for him, but to not stand in front of him. You know, we have a great expression in our Western world. You make a great, uh, you make a great door but a lousy window. You ever heard that said to somebody? Right? This is what Jesus is saying to this church. You actually think you're the door when I have only called you to be a window. Let people see Christ through you. But they all have to come to me, as in Jesus. He is the one. How this must have shaken John as he's writing this. He's the one that quoted Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he's having to write down to this church, you see, it is Christ, not Ephesus, that holds the seven stars and walks among the candlesticks. There's no room for pride. It is Jesus alone who is sovereign, not any church. For the primary thing for us all to learn here, especially as we come to the table of the Lord, is notice what it says in our passage, He knows our works. None of you is going to come to that table and say to God, I thank you, Lord, and now give him your resume. Because you know what? I think, sorry, this is a bit maybe disrespectful. I think that Jesus must play a lot of Shania Twain. Because when we come to him with our resume, all I think he says is, that don't impress me much. <laughs> I really do. When you and I come to this table, there's no room for, I thank you, God, that I am not like or I have done. This table is nothing but, Lord, I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer. I have no resume. And that's why in Isaiah, God tells the prophet Isaiah to tell the nation of Israel, come, buy from me wine without money. Why would he say that if it isn't because he's offering them something they could never purchase? His love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. But notice the, con the diagnosis both the commendation and the complaint very quickly. He commends them because they weren't simply periodically working for him. They were consistently working. They persevered. In other words, they listened to Paul in Acts chapter 20. This was an active church. The membership was busy doing all kinds of stuff and good stuff. 
And this church was an enduring church, whether facing persecution or simply staying the course. This church stayed at it. And this church was an orthodox church. They stayed true to the doctrines laid out for them. The Nicolotians couldn't, couldn't infect them. They had, couldn't get a foothold. And yet, this is the same John who would say in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Do you realize a lot of people think that 1 John might have been written to the Ephesian church by the Apostle John? And so this is what he's doing. But despite the fact that they were an active church and an enduring church and an orthodox church, Christ says, I have something against you. One commentator comments this. This describes divine displeasure. And speaks of the, temp, the potential for future judgment. And what was it that he had against them? Are you ready? Notice, they left their first love. If you write in your Bibles, please get this. Because they left it. They didn't lose it. Too many of us misquote this and go, Oh, they lost their first... No, 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 no. They didn't lose it. They left it. They made a conscious decision to leave it. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 24? And it was a love lost on two fronts. A love for God and a love for people. Because he says the love of many will grow cold. Grant Osborne says they had lost the first flourish or flush of enthusiasm and excitement of their Christian life. And had settled into a cold orthodoxy more surface than depth. A church has lost its ministry and forsaken its mission when Robert's rules of order are referred to more than the Bible and business meetings are more important than baptisms. When being heard is cover for getting my way and when being right is more important than the souls of people. This is what God says I have against this church. Considering our Bible is filled with commands to love God. In Romans 8.28, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, in chapter 8, verse 3, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. But we're also a love a Bible that is filled with commands to love people. John chapter 13.34, by this all the world people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, 1 Peter 1.22, 1 John 3.11. And yet, let me tell you that according to the Bible, love is the test of orthodoxy. And this is love you give to others, not love you demand from others. So if you're sitting here this morning and going, preach it, Steve. Finally, someone's going to come love me. You're missing it. The message to Ephesus is, You've stopped loving other people. And you're more in love with telling other people what is right and not caring at all to patiently walk the messy road to get people to be right. Because that takes time and mess. That's why 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now this is not about not speaking the truth. This was a church that stood for the truth. 
They were complimented for standing for the truth. The problem was they were more in love with the truth and had no love for the people they were telling the truth to. Huh. One of my favorite marriage books, as you know, is Love and Respect by Emerson Egridge. And one of the famous lines in it, he talks about him and his wife are having a disagreement. And they've both been guilty of this. But he talks about his wife and he says she was right. And he looks at her and she's really making the case to be right. And he says, sweetie, you're right. But you don't always have to be right at the top of your lungs. Too many churches, we want to be right at the top of our lungs. And so we're social media savvy. And we yell at the world about all the moral decay and moral issues. And it's not that we're wrong in what we're saying. But boy, we're jerks while we do it. And there's no patience. And there's no love. And all it screams is, we're right and you're wrong. Get a head in your brain. Get a brain in your head. And then come and be with us on the team right. And yet, doesn't that fly against what Jesus actually did when he left heaven to come become the very creation he had created so he could tell a group of people that had forsaken him and were wrong that he loved them enough to die for them. This is not a message where I tell you that we forsake this book or we stop standing on the truths that we believe. I believe this book with all of my being, but I do believe we are called to be nice and to stop yelling and screaming at the world when we should be pleading and begging and displaying our lives are transformed Come see how yours can be as well. And that's why he says, the Ephesians love truth more than they loved God or one another. Now this doesn't mean that they were not believers, by the way, because Jesus would never have said what he did in verses 2 and 3. But it does mean that their early love had grown cold and been replaced with this harsh zeal for orthodoxy or simply, here's what they loved. They loved being right. Joseph Stowell, the former president of Moody, he said, in contrast to the two commands of Christ in Matthew 24, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws, 365 negative ones, 248 positive ones. And by the time Jesus came, Judaism was a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of self-righteousness. And here's what he says. These are the ten tragic flaws when we do this in our church. When we do this in our churches, new laws continually need to be invented for new situations. Accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. It reduces a person's ability to personally discern. It creates a judgmental spirit. The Pharisees confuse personal preferences with divine law. It produces inconsistencies. It creates a false standard of righteousness. It becomes a burden. It is strictly external. It was rejected by Christ. So what is the exhortation? What is the admonition? It's in verse 5. It's three R's. Are you ready for this? Very quickly in a couple minutes. Remember, repent, and return. That's the solution. The solution lay in these three areas. 
Christ says, remember, in the Greek and in the New Testament, this means much more than just calling into mind. It means remember means to act upon. It means that when you remember the love you once had, you return to that love, acting out that love. As one man has written, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. Spurgeon said, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. The habit of regular morning and evening prayer is one which is indispensable to a believer's life. But the prescribing of the length of prayer and the constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender unto bondage and strangle prayer rather than assist it. Jesus called on them to repent, to do a combination that can't go without each other. You remember, and then you repent, and then you return to a proper response. Repentance is a change of heart. Show me a church where there is love, and I'll show you a church that is a power in the community. In Chicago, many years ago, a little boy attended Sunday school. When his parents moved to another part of the city, the little fellow still attended the same Sunday school, although it meant a long, tiresome walk every way, every day. A friend asked him why he went so far, and he told him that there were plenty of other churches just as good near his home. They may be good for others, but not for me, was the little fellow's reply. Why not, his friend asked. Because at my church, they love a fellow over there. If only we could make the world believe that we love them there would be fewer empty churches. And then notice, why would we do this? The promise in verse 7. Because there's a promise of victory. To the one who conquers, there is participation in his victory. And why is it in his victory? Notice it. Because the ultimate victory is with God and God alone. He's letting them know. You can win all the battles you want, but they're hollow and they'll never satisfy. But when you win the victory in Christ, then you rest. If you are constantly tired in your spiritual life, here's my question. Are you fighting it in your strength and not the gospel? Notice he says this promise. He says that they will eat of the tree of life. Now, don't miss this. In Genesis chapter 2, there were two trees, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. When Adam and Eve fell in sin and they ate of the tree of good and evil, they were Kicked out of the garden. Why? So they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. Because then they would be damned eternally in their sin. But one day, Jesus says, when I fix everything, you will all, the conquerors, will eat of the tree of life. To those who love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling Ephesus, stop trying to act like you need to defend me. What you need to do is rest on me. You need to be like me. And so, this morning, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to ask you these questions. What do you and I stand for? I mean, really. What do you believe in? Number two, how and why do you stand for it? Why do you believe what you believe? And how do you believe what you believe? Can I ask you this as we come to the table of the Lord? When was the last time you thought about your salvation? When was the last time you sang amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? And you meant it. 
And can I ask this, Calvary? What would St. John's and other Christians say we are known for? What is our reputation in this city? Or even worse, does this city even know we exist? I know we need to stand for truth, Calvary. But we need to be careful not to put truth in front of Christ. And while we need to stand against heresy, we need not to be heresy hunters. And may God grant us all the grace to love Him more as we now come to this table. We need the maturity to distinguish between cardinal doctrines and issues that are clear and scriptural and essential for Christian faith. And I end like I started. A church that has forgotten to love is a church that has ceased to be a church. And that's why Jesus warns that he will remove himself from any such church. Yet, when we do learn to conquer, not only heretics, but our own sinful tendencies, we will experience the blessings of God in a new way and be assured of God's paradise. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. There is not one of you in this room that is good enough to make it to heaven. Every one of you deserves hell, me included. Yet, you and I are so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me and you. And when we get that and we believe it, it leads to deep humility and a deep confidence. And John Stott put it so well, and here's how I will set up the table of the Lord. John Stott, the old Anglican minister who went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. They beautiful words. Now take that attitude and let us now celebrate the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, as we come to your table, Lord, I pray not as an add-on. Lord, God forbid that I could preach this sermon and now we as a people would start to act religious. Lord, may this first Sunday in September be a time for us to give up self-righteousness and truly be a church of men and women, young and old, at various states in our walk with God. Lord, there's a lot of sin in this room. And yet, if we trust you, then every man and woman in here is a saint. And it's only because of a Savior. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, here present with us, and they don't know you, I beg of you, Lord, that you would not allow them to participate in this table, not out of a sense of shame or guilt, but Lord, out of a sense of curiosity and wonder and wanting to know for sure, do I have a real relationship with Christ? 
Lord, for those of us as Christians here this morning, may this not be a game. May this not be for show. May we come to this meal like we should come to meals when we have them at breakfast and at dinner and supper. We're hungry and we need nourishment. And we want to eat with those that are at the table with us because, Lord, these are our family. And we want to laugh and we want to cry. We want to tell stories. And we want to be reminded that it's safe because here we're a family. So, Lord, help us to see you as the provider of this table. And may you get all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.